Hey guys, Tim Cooper calling. Just wanted to let you know I'm loving the podcast. Uh, keep it up. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It's great to be back with you. We are now wrapping up our series entitled The Slavery of Death. This is part three in a three-part series. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't listen to part one and two, you probably want to go back and do that um, so that you can listen to all three parts in order. I think it'll make a lot more sense for you. This is a three-part series that's kind of an encapsulation of a 31-part blog post series that you can find at Dr. Richard Beck's blog, Experimental Theology. Um, This Slavery of Death series really gives you a ton, in my opinion, a ton of food for thought, really wraps up a lot of loose ends for me, and I hope you guys have enjoyed it half as much as I have, because I've had an absolute blast talking with Richard about these topics. Great, great stuff. Richard, thanks once again for taking the time to do this. Um, I hope you'll jump over to Richard's blog and read all 31 parts of this series. Hopefully this three hours that we recorded is a good, um, at least introduction or uh, abridgment of the thoughts that he's expounding on the blog. So I hope you guys will really enjoy it. This is part three entitled Perfect Love Casts Out Fear. And in this one, we really try and we try and kind of ask the so what question, you know, from part one and two, from the denial of death, the sting of death is sin. Okay, I, I get this, but what's the big deal? What's the implications? What does this What does this mean for the believer in Jesus? And we really try and kind of talk about that and maybe explore some possibilities as to how we might apply this information on a day-to-day basis. So I hope you guys are going to enjoy this. Perfect Love Casts Out Fear with Dr. Richard Beck. All right, we are very pleased to be joined by Richard Beck again on Beyond the Box. Dr. Richard Beck is the chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. Um, We are right now smack dab in the middle of a series on um, the slavery of death, which is a series of posts that you did on your blog, 31 posts, man, 31 posts of absolute (laughs) theological greatness, loving the stuff. Uh, get yourself some theological goodness at experimentaltheology.blogspot.com with Dr. Richard Beck. Richard, thanks so much for joining us once again. Really looking forward to the conversation. Good to be back. You know, we talked in parts one and parts two about uh, part one, just kind of introducing this whole idea of the slavery of death. The idea that um, that our fear of death goes beyond just simply being scared that at the end of we'll die, but really that there's a, there, there's this neurotic fear, which makes us think that our life has no significance, no meaning. And therefore we, from that part, we went into the denial of death. Some of 
Ernest Becker's work, talking about how uh, the problem with being enslaved to the fear of death is that we tend to wrap our lives into serving the powers, the principalities and powers of this world, by giving our lives to cultural heroics, to to projects that really, at the end of the day, won't outlast us by very much, if at all. Um, and then you really got into Richard in the last in the last segment, talking about how that really leads us into conflict with other ideological systems. Um, Ernest Becker's book Escape from Evil, where he really talks about how the denial of death is a problem because so many times, you know, when you, when you read the denial of death in some ways, to be honest, you, you kind of, you don't feel the better for it at first. <laughs> and you know, you're kind of like, what's the big deal? You know, why does it matter? Why does it matter that I'm kind of covering over death? Why does it matter that I'm giving my life to something to distract me from the fact that at the end of it, it's really not even going to matter. Um, but when you really begin to look into the inner workings of this thing and you understand that it really does matter because wars are started, arguments are started, fights are started, and really all of the conflicts that go on in our day-to-day -day lives really all come back to um, these these death anxieties of mm -hmm. our cultural conflicts and our ways of dealing with death of those systems coming into conflict. We talked a lot about that on the last podcast, and in this podcast, we're dubbing this one Perfect Love Cast Out Fear, which sounds a lot like a verse from 1 John that I, I think I've heard before. <laughs> um, and, and we kind of want to kind of help our listeners to understand, okay, we've, we've seen the problem. Now, what's a solution? What's a positive way that I can live in light of death? Um, without giving myself over to the slavery of the fear of death? How can I live in the freedom that Christ supposedly bought for me by subjecting himself to death? So you start this part out in talking about martyrological identity. And, you know, that, it kind of rung a bell with me that, you know, the word martyr was simply, it simply was the same place we get the word witness from. Mm -hmm. That really for, you know, many years, there was not much of a separation between martyrs and witnesses for Christ, because most people who gave witness to Christ ended up, or many of them ended up becoming martyrs. Can you talk a little bit about this martyrological identity, though, and how it differs from how some people might misunderstand this term and think it to mean martyrdom? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, martyrdom is, is you know, it may, may be one path it, it could take. And when I, when I posted this, I think a lot of people kind of thought I was calling for you know, for people to be become <laughs> become martyrs or whatever. <laughs> but but mainly what I'm trying to point to by grabbing that term martyr is is Jesus is well, I, you know, I think most of us are probably familiar with um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, the cost of discipleship. When when Christ bids a man, um, he bids him come and die. That that that's all I'm trying to capture with that. That there is a call. There there is a, a regular refrain in the New Testament that we are to die um, and that somehow this dying uh, moves us into we experience resurrection mm. on the other side of it mm. and and so that idea of learning how to die and then on the other side and that's a scary prospect dying but finding finding love and resurrection and freedom on the other side so Jesus says you know 
if a, you know, if a man is going to follow me, he must, you know, take up his cross and follow me. So, so that's, that's Jesus's way of describing the martyrological identity. You know, you must die. But what I really do to kind of connect it with um, this idea of self-esteem and um, the stuff we talked about in the last podcast is Paul's discussion where he kind of ticks off all of these things that could have maybe been to his credit, um, uh, a cause of boasting. Um, and he says how he considers it all rubbish. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, we often kind of uh, think of that discussion as kind of this work, works-based righteousness, you know, that Paul said I couldn't. And, 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 and I don't, what, what, the way I'm looking at that is Paul essentially saying, you know, these things, um, you know, I'm, these things ha- hold no meaning for me anymore. Um, and so in a certain sense, he has, he has died to those pursuits, those ways of kind of achieving significance or boasting in his word uh, uh, for self-esteem. And so for me, the moral identity is that that's kind of the root idea of, of death is becoming um, maybe indifferent to the self-esteem projects of the culture while everybody's chasing after the self-esteem that you get, as you described, serving the principalities and powers, I become indifferent to those things. Um, the, the, the little baubles that the culture dangles out in front of me to chase after, um, the way it's manipulating my sense of significance or insignificance, which we talked about is really rooted in an anxiety about my life mattering in the face of death, mm. that, that we become indifferent to those kinds of things. And when we become indifferent, um, when those anxieties can't be used against me to push and pull me the way the culture is pushed and pulled, then I become free and available uh, to love others, mainly because um, uh, these others are not a threat to me. Um, it doesn't matter if they're dressed better than me or they have, a, you know, it doesn't matter if they're more successful than me or bigger house or bigger car. I just don't. Until in the language of Paul, he says, we no longer consider uh, people from a human point of view. Mm. Um, and, and I, I would read that as we don't, we no longer evaluate people through the self-esteem projects of, of the culture. That's not how we evaluate it. That's a good translation of that. I really like that. Yeah. So it's really, it's really all to do with kind of getting out from under the world system. Right. Dying to it. Dying to the world system. Yeah. Right. That it sounds a lot like that Romans 12 thing, you know, don't, don't be conformed to the system of the world to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, renew your mind to, to understand that it really all is rubbish. Like Paul said, just count it all a pile of crap and realize that your life is only found in God, that whole eccentric identity that we talked about in podcast two. And I think this, I mean, I think that what's different about that is, I mean, what, what we, you and I have just said here has been said many, many times. I think the different twist is, is, is that I'm trying to argue that that move, to, to die to the world is inherently about overcoming these neurotic anxieties that we have. Mm. I, I think we tend to think we die to the world, meaning, you know, I'm not as materialistic or those kinds of things, but we're not getting, we're dealing, it's like, it's like, it's like just blowing your nose when you got the flu. You're just treating the symptoms, yeah. you know, um, unless you get to the root, why do we have a need to conform? You know, why are we so desperate for other people to approve of us? Um, you know, and until we get down to that level, those fundamental anxieties, those neurotic anxieties, um, uh, you're not going to be able to deal with 
you know, you, you can't go against the flow if at root you're still caught up with what people think about you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and, uh, in, and what happens in Christianity is we just create other versions of that. You know, you, you, you join, you join the youth group and then you got to be cool in the way they, that, that system defines cool, you know? Um, and so we just recreate the world's ways, uh, but with just a Christian veneer on top of it. Which is one of the things, honestly, Richard, that, that has been kind of discouraging for me and the number of years I've spent in Christian retail is to see that it really is so many times just a thin veneer over the the whole death system, the whole death cycle of this world. Um, that you know, sometimes I see I see new Bibles come in, and in the last five years or so, they've gotten really really creative about the covers on Bibles and um, just how designer they make them. So much so that they've even come out with a designer line of Bibles, which just I don't know. That just kind of boggles my mind to think yeah. that we can even get into a competition about, you know, do you have a calfskin Bible or a bonded leather Bible? It's just, yeah. it's just downright bizarre. I remember, uh, uh, I wrote about this on my blog. Uh, uh my, my son had a, had kind of like a children's Bible, middle school Bible. And he's, you know, go, go he's going into high school next year, you know? So I was like, and we need to get you a, you know, something a little, a little bit more appropriate for a teenager. So we went to our local retail, Christian retail store and, uh, we're in the back and looking at all these Bibles and you pull out these teen Bibles and it's all these hip kids and, you know, they're dressed cool. And, and, uh, you're like, you know, it's just, it's exactly the same thing, right? I mean, you, you buy this stuff and you can be cool too, yeah. which is just, you know, just, you know, the, the serving that, that, that cultural idol, you know, that, that you're going to be hip and cool, you know, and you're in, um, and I don't know where that is found in the Bible. That, I don't know, know the chapter and verse for that one. The I, disciples I, of Jesus will be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that when you walk through like a, your Christian music, your, your music section at your Christian bookstore, you know, most of the artists are just very attractive. You know, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's really kind of, disheartening when you look at these covers and realize, okay, part of the message of this Christian music is supposedly that it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside, that God looks at your heart. He doesn't look at your, at the outward man. And yet they have on like 17 layers of makeup and really well done hair and super nice clothes. And I don't know, it's, it really, it, to me, it's sometimes, um, if you can say it this way, it's almost the greater sin to to use the cultural veneer and slap the name of Jesus on it than it is just to go ahead and get involved in the cultural heroics of our society and leave God out of it. Yeah, it might just be more honest to just, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jesus, uh, and you quoted this in your series, which really all of a sudden it just made more sense to me, where Jesus says, you know, what does it profit a man to gain the world? but loses soul. So it seems to be that there's like, there's two ways to construct our identity. You talk about in the series, there's the way of gaining the world and there's the way of the cross. There's the way of giving up your life so that you can actually find real life. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like so much of what you're doing in this series is helping us realize what real life actually is. 
what mm-hmm. what it really means to live versus living for the idols mm-hmm. of our culture. Yeah, I think and in, in, in I think that's the hard choice that at any given moment I I have that choice in front of me. Um and to 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 not choose the world um again is to is to go against Oh, you know the whole almost worldview. It, it, it's it, it, it's hard to even know um, that you're being, you're susceptible to it. it. It's like that old um, David Foster Wallace had a had an essay, um, uh, a commencement address, and he told a joke about how there's these two fish, uh, young fish swimming in the water, and this old fish swims by, and he the old fish looks at the two young fish and he says, "Hey boys, how's the water?" And then the, he passes by, and then the two little fish look at each other and go, "Hey, what's water?" You know. <laughs> and and, and so the point being is, I think I think that's the way the cultural worldview is. We don't realize we're swimming in it. We don't realize how it's the air we breathe. It's 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 everything around us. And and so to quote unquote deny the world, right? Mm-hmm. To is is. It's just a seismic change um, that that and anxiety inducing because you're going to go. You're, I think that's why they're calling it. They call it a death. I mean, there's a, there's a real sense of loss, um, uh, and I think that Paul, you know, Paul felt that when he kind of on the other side of the his of the Jesus event on the Damascus Road looks back at all of that, and I, and you get a sense sometimes he regrets it. He kind of looks back and he goes, you know, I was the one that. You know, I was the one that he came to last. I was untimely born. I was the one that, you know, persecuted the church. You know, he kind of looks back on that and probably doesn't feel great about it. But yeah. it's just loss, yeah. you know. But it's, but he counts it as worth it to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yeah, yeah. So in talking about this and talking about dying to the cultural heroics of our society, what does an identity that's no longer affected by death. What would, what would that begin to look like for the Christian? What would, what does it look like to live beyond the slavery to the fear of death? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, um, the one thing I, I, I talk about is, um, is, is that in, in many ways, this is aspirational. Um, yeah. so, 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 you know, a lot of the comments that I got on in the series is, you know, is it even possible to live without death? I mean, aren't we at the end of the day and, and aren't we in, even if we live without death, aren't we in some way complicit in, in feeding ourselves and clothing ourselves? I mean, is there any way to ultimately get, get to, to, to find a place where we're completely holy and clean and not involved in, in some, you know, is it like, for example, people say, you know, didn't Jesus at some point need to spend time on himself and didn't he have to feed himself, you know? And, and so I, I, so I, I spend a little bit of time before I get into kind of this martyrological identity talking about uh, Augustine's perspective on uh, Timur Mortis and Timur Mortis is just, you know, um, Latin for the, the the fear where we get timidity or temerity and mortis meaning death. And, and you know, early on in his writings, um, Augustine was trying to compare the, the, the Christian martyrs to the martyrs of the Greek tradition, you know, like Socrates. Um, 
was able to drink the hemlock and he was calm and fearless in front of death. And, and, uh, and so there was this sense where the Christian propaganda machine was rolling and, and we wanted to hear all these great stories about the Christian martyrs who, you know, could walk into the flames and they never feared death at all. But he eventually began uh, pushing back on that idea as, as, as time went on. And, and, he, and he eventually lands and says, you know what, it, it's okay to fear death um, because it rec- you recognize that life is a gift and life is, and life is precious. And so in one sense, the, the fear of death is just simply the valuing of life and even your own life as a gift. Um, because if you take this to one illogical extreme, uh, people are saying, well, if you become completely fearless about death, then, then, you know, why wouldn't you just commit suicide or why would you not become, um, you know, we, we have suicide bombers in our world. So, you know, we see kind of pathological martyrdom going on there. And so one thing I want to say is, is that the ideal here isn't necessarily this person that is indifferent to life. Mm. Um, um, uh, that, that, that as biological creatures, life, we affirm that life is good and obviously therefore the loss of life and that would involve our own life um, w- would bring sadness. Um, and that, um, so the, but the issue I'm trying to say is, but so the, the goal of the series is to say, you know, in any given moment, when I make choices um, about loving other people, that the fundamental choice that I'm experiencing is the risk of diminishment to myself mm. and, and being learn being able to master that anxiety um, and make choices that might actually involve loving others. So, I mean, very concretely then, right. It involves, getting involved in the lives of other people um, and, and anybody who's remotely tried to start opening their lives up in a loving way to other people start realizing that these other people uh, begin to take, they, they begin to demand things from me, time and attention and money. And, um, and we start having to make these choices. You know, am I going to sacrifice time with my family to be with these people? Am I going to let these people into my home? Um, should I sell things that I own so so that I can help these? I mean, we're immediately going to start facing these these worries about resources and and how it all at the end of the day affects me. Um, and I and at that moment, I'm not given any recommendations about where that line should be drawn. And, and Christians have drawn the line. You know, you look at somebody like a Shane Claiborne or the new monastics and you see kind of the degree to which they will go to to say no to themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you see, you know, and other people make different choices. What I was trying, what I'm trying to do in this series is is um, wherever you've currently drawn that boundary to discuss what's happening at that boundary point so that when when the call to love people more comes, we're able to maybe move that boundary a little bit more um, uh, uh, in one direction towards love rather than constantly vigilantly monitoring that boundary out of fear and not, you know, not, not doing anything. So 
so to me, it's it's a series that's that's less is going to end up with a picture of what the Christian should look like, as much as it's going to be a tool of self diagnosis. Mm. So so I mean, the one thing that that's been good for me is to hear how you've interacted with the material. You know, you're going to take that material and go in different directions. It, it'll concretely play out in the very particularities of your own life and your own self esteem and your own meaning. It's played out in my own life in a very particular way. And my hope would be is that other people read it or listen to these podcasts, that it would, it would allow them to critique their current choices and begin to help them move in more, um, help them overcome fears um, in their own life so that they would become more loving and open up uh, towards other people. Mm. Um, um, and, and, and my, my sense is though that that would just, be a journey that one would begin and, and wouldn't, ult- wouldn't ultimately complete um, in this lifetime. Uh, and I think so, even, even when you look at people like, like you said, Shane Claiborne in the New Monastics, and when you look at uh, St. Francis of Assisi, um, I think even when you look at those people, I think even they would admit that they were on a journey, no matter how yeah. far, no matter how embracing you've become of the other that um, the boundary can be pushed for each of us, no matter where we're at. There, mm-hmm. there, are, there are still places in our life that we have kind of cornered off for ourselves. Little parts of the world that, like you talked about in the last podcast that Arthur McGill talked about, still parts of our identity of po- that, that, that are about possession. Still mm-hmm. parts of our identity that we try and own and that we try and say, I'll let you in every room in my heart, except for this one, this one's going to be stored away. And I think part of this, Richard, and, and like you said, I I really appreciate what you said about how each of us are going to interact differently with that. I think that's the point. I think that's where the spirit comes in, but I know that one place in my own life that this is, that this is beginning to come real with me is of course, in giving more time and giving more love, but even in opening up myself, even in the idea of, um, sharing more about myself because I know there's times when I'll be in a conversation with someone or, um, talking to someone and I'll think to myself, gosh, I'm just really going to hold this part of me back because I don't want to make myself vulnerable. I don't want to, um, risk the idea that, you know, maybe I'm going to be rejected. I think part of this for me is realizing that those, even those boundaries, it's your whole life. Even those boundaries need to be opened up and pushed so that you're not only receiving the other, but there's this idea of you're, you're giving of yourself too. I think, I I guess what I'm trying to say is so many times we look at, um, we look at giving as just this thing that we do for the other that it's something that we're just always ministering to them. And that can seem like a really condescending thing. If you're on the receiving end of that, if uh, just, just as an example, I don't know why I'm going down this road, Richard, but it feels good. (laughs) Um, I I was talking to, there's a, there's a gentleman that's in our town that's homeless and I've kind of struck up a friendship with him and we've been, we've been talking and it just really hit me one day when I was talking to him. He came up, I was at work and uh, somebody had taken a box uh, out to the dumpster and it had a bunch of peanuts in it 
and the peanuts, the wind had caught them and it blew them all over the parking lot. And so I ran out there and started trying to gather them up and, you know, clean up the parking lot. And this gentleman happened to walk through our parking lot and we've had a lot of conversations and had lunch and, you know, all this kind of thing. And he offered to, he offered to start picking up the peanuts. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. <clears throat> and later on, it hit me that what I was doing is I was standing in a position of always wanting to be uh, the benefactor, always mm -hmm. wanting to be the one that helped him and that condescended to his level, but never admitting space in my life where I might receive from him, where I might open up my own heart and say, hey, I actually need you just like you need me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think there, I don't know, I don't know why I'm going in that direction, Richard, but it just feels like so many times when we look at, when we look at, um, loving the other, we always look at, look at it as a top down thing that we're always in a position at the top and we're giving love, but the, actually the receiving of love can be just as important, um, in loving a person as the actual giving of love. Yeah. Well, I think Arthur McGill in his work has a um, uh, it's pretty he talks about how love love involves a real loss of the self. And that might be one of the more radical things that that, that um, I talk about this in my book on clean a little bit, but I also get into it in the series. Um, it, it's how that we tend to we, we his argument is that we tend to believe that love can be. Um, uh, gi given f from the excess that, 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 that we have this boundary where we're self-possessed and we own everything. And then if there's anything left over, anything extra, mm -hmm. then I can give that to the needy or the church or, you know, somebody else. And his argument is that that's not love. That's not a real reciprocity. That is no real vulnerability. There's no real risk there. Um, at all. And so, so listen to what you're saying. It is, it is about the hierarchy, but I also think it's about the sense that that's what's going on here is, is that we're still, um, trying to own our, our identities. Um, and therefore, um, our love becomes limited because that means we can only give what we can spare. Um, and and so I think I think of Jesus and the widow with the two mites, right? He he looks at all these people and then he says, you know, she gave more than anybody because these people gave out of their excess. Mm. She gave all she had. And what does that mean? She put herself at risk. She gave everything away. And and that's that that's what we talked about that eccentric identity. And therefore is resting, trusting that God would would, would catch her. And I think that's the one thing that we really, really are afraid of. We don't want to fall and and not have somebody catch us. So we don't ever allow ourselves to fall. Um, and so what happens is church becomes these autonomous people um, who don't really ever fall and catch each other because nobody wants to risk falling and hitting the ground, you know, um, but that's kind of what, Je like we talked about in the last podcast, with Jesus on the cross, when he when he gives his spirit away, he's he's trust that he'll get caught mm. by the Father. Um, and so I, I talk a little bit about that in the series about 
the other, the other thing I don't want to say is that I don't want to, this is kind of a classic other Protestant mistake, is that I'm trying to paint the picture of what an individual Christian must do on their own. I, I say one point in the series that God doesn't want you to be Atlas, to lift up the entire world all on your own. You know, your love will sustain the world. What he's asking you to do is participate in a community of love where there is mutuality uh, in relationship and that that I care for other people and that I learn to let them care for me. So the, the idea of the at-oneness or the koinonia of the early Christian church, you see at the end of Acts 2 and Acts 4, that, that, that love, love, this love we're talking about, this dealing with my anxieties um, um, are best seen in being in a part of a loving community and not just I myself. Because uh, you're right, if, if it's just up to me, and I expend in loving others, I'm eventually expended. I'm eventually used up. And that's kind of the main critique I often get when I walk through this material is like, well, I mean, at some point I'm going to have to say no to other people. I mean, at some point I'm going to have to say no because I have to rehabilitate myself. I have to get my own rest. I have to have my own retirement. I have to feed my own kids. I mean, so, you know, yeah, at some point I'm going to say no to others. And that's true. Um, but, but it's, but that's just looking at you having infinite resources and you don't have infinite resources, but if I can participate in a community of like-minded Christ followers, then it's not up to me to hmm. love everybody. I can be loved in turn, as you were saying, I, I, I can receive as well as give. And so as I give, I'm filled up in return. So I do think we need to have a communal focus here. Um, otherwise you're going to hear this has been kind of really unworkable, you know, um, I think what you're saying about, you know, and, and I definitely want to get into what you're talking about with the community a little bit too in a moment, but I think what you're saying with the, with the safety net thing, the idea that, um, we can't give because if we, we, we can only give to a point because if we go too far, you know, who's going to be there to catch us? Where, where's our safety net? I think this is so embedded in our culture, especially in 21st century America. I mean, we have, we have a gazillion different kinds of insurance policies now that basically build bastions of self-protection around us so that, you know, if I wreck my car, I have insurance for that. If, you know, if I die, I've got insurance to take care of my family. If I get sick, I've got insurance to take care of my health. And, you know, it even gets to the place where I was at the um, shoe store about a year or two ago and I was buying a pair of shoes. I bought a pair of tennis shoes and I get to the register and the guy asked me if I want to pick up the insurance plan on my tennis shoes. I'm kind of like, well, my tennis shoes. He actually offered me like a $8 plan or something if my tennis shoes wore out in the next two years. And I was like, you've got <laughs> to be kidding me. I mean, uh, but that but that really shows how in, how this is such a integral part of American society and how as the church, we really don't differ very much from the rest of American society because – we're so used to being self-sufficient. We're so used to being able to meet our needs and to, like you said, cut a little fat off the top to maybe help the poor children in Africa or something like that. This idea of community you really hit on because um, you said that you said that the kingdom of God, that it's a loving economy, that Christian love is less about sacrifice than it is about economy. And I know you've kind of touched on that, but can we maybe go a little bit deeper with exactly what you mean by that? And what does it look like 
to kind of live in community because I, I know for a lot of people that, that listen to this podcast, um, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us don't attend church. We're looking, we're looking at trying to try and find Christian community outside of traditional hierarchical structures. Um, mm-hmm. I would say probably the vast majority of the people that listen to the podcast are kind of in that boat. How would you speak to that, Richard? And I know, and I know you're part of a fellowship, you're part of a church. What are, what are some maybe uh, examples from your own life or maybe some creative thoughts that you have about that living in yeah. the economy of God? Well, to, to, let me, let me back up and kind of sneak up on that because, because kind of what you were saying earlier about kind of go, go how, um, the self-sufficiency is so much driven by our culture. Cause I think that's where you need to start yeah. because, um, and it goes back to what we talked about last podcast from the pornography of death. Um, again, I'm going to go back to something Arthur McGill talks about, and he says part of the problem, one of the, one of the symptoms of this pornography of death is that we, again, we want to hide from our eyes and our awareness, any sign of death. And he would say that one of the signs of death is um, neediness. Hmm. To, to, to be in need, um, to be in want, is uh, a sign of death. And, and so it, that has become pornographic. And I think that's one of the biggest things that struggles with, with contemporary churches. And I think one of the reasons why people don't like, you know, they hear people who've been on church, one of the reasons they don't like going is because it seems fake. And, and one of the reasons why I think it seems fake is, yeah, it can be self-righteous. But one of the reasons I think it seems fake is that nobody's being honest. Mm. Nobody's being honest about their own neediness um, because it's considered to be, in, in our culture, um, shameful. I mean, if you and I uh, can't pay our bills, let's say you and I can't pay our rent this month, or anybody of your listeners can't pay their rent this month, well... Who are you going to be able to tell that to without feeling like a complete and utter failure? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to go, I don't want to go up to my friends and say, can I borrow money from you? I, I'd be humiliating, you know, and, and, and that, and, and McGill says it's humiliating because in our culture, um, it's, that's pornographic to be in need. And so, so what we do is we learn to hide our needs. So we, we, we go to church and we pretend that I don't have any financial needs. I don't have any relational needs. I don't have any, um, you know, moral or, or, or emotional needs. And so we're all just kind of self-sufficient creatures. And so it's all very thin. You know, it, it feels fake. The, the whole experience kind of feels fake. Um, and, and so, uh, and again, so 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 we have to deal with that anxiety about what people will think about me, because then this this is all tied up. We were talked about last last podcast about that self esteem project. Um, so it's all kind of cooking together here. I um, we don't want to see signs of death, so we don't want to see need displayed. But if I show need, it's going to affect my self esteem. Um, what will people think about me? And um, and so what happens is we, we can't create to begin with an economy. We can't begin to create a community of, of reciprocity and mutuality and sharing because everybody's committed to this kind of fear-based denial that everything is okay. McGill says that the dominant 
ethic in American society today is to be fine, <laughs> you know, to, to be fine. Yeah. So when people ask you, how are you doing? I'm fine. You got to be fine. I mean, yeah. you have to be fine. Yeah. And if you're not fine, then what, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? Yeah. Even that you're not fine. Um, you know, you should work harder. Or you should, you know, you know, be more, you know what I mean? You, you're blamed for not being fine. It, it, that's the biggest sin in American society is that you're not self-sufficient. Um, and so consequently, there's no economy. There's just isolated individuals trying to do it all on their own. So I would say to, to create, uh, and, and I think for, for your listeners that aren't affiliated with the church, I think if, if they said, you know, if I actually saw a community that was authentic and that was willing to, for a moment, say, you know, what, I'm not fine. You know, I'm not fine. And that other people were willing to step alongside and say, I'm not fine either but together you know we can we can do this together i think they would come back right i think they would i would think they'd say i'd be willing to i'd be willing to be a part of that community um yeah i really don't think the problem is that that people don't want to be in community i don't think that's it at all i think it's it's exactly what you're saying and i think part of it is this um i think the whole hierarchical structure tends towards this because the one guy at the top sets the example mm-hmm. he's always fine and therefore you're always fine he has all the answers therefore you should have the answers and it's almost like this um i think that's what a lot of the rebellion at least maybe in my generation or i don't know that i'm seeing now mm-hmm. um is this idea that there's a guy at the top or a woman at the top or whatever or even a little group at the top that has all the answers that doles out the resources. You know, I think so many people are tired of pyramid Christianity, top down Christianity. And if I think, I don't know many people that would say, if I found a community that looked like what you're talking about, where there is, there is a actual egalitarianism and an Mm -hmm. actual openness um, to giving and receiving, not just, finances, not just needs being met, but even within the context of our meetings that mm-hmm. I recognize, you know, like the whole first Corinthians 12 and 14 thing about, you know, that when you come together, each of you has something to contribute. Right. Um, I think those kind of communities are very attractive. I just think they're so darn few and far between. <laughs> no, I agree. No, I agree. And I think that's, you know, that's the big challenge is it's, is a uh, fine is finding, finding a place. Um, and, uh, uh, because I mean, to be honest, it's just hard. It's hard to, the, the find, the finding of the place is hard, you know, to just, to visit, to, to go through the, the awkwardness of visiting that new church or checking it out and going through the, you know, are you visiting? Are you new? I mean, man, it is a huge burden. You know, I, I feel great sympathy for people out there trying to find who just can't, they just don't have the stomach to do the searching there might, there might be these communities out there, but, but I admit that there are, there are few. And so therefore it's hard to, it's hard to find them yeah, uh, in yeah, that sense. Yeah. But, but let, let me go back to that thing about hierarchy you're talking about. Cause whenever you're going to see those kind of top down bureaucracies, again, that's a classic sign that of, of kind of, um, of, of principalities and powers, because what you're seeing is this huge infrastructure built up to put, to serve the institution. Mm. 
right? The survival of the institution, the health of the institution is what's primary. Um, and, and I think a, a lot of churches, you get that sense that the, the, the survival of that church and that institution is, is the primary goal. And, and, uh, um, and, but again, that, that's the same thing we talked about last podcast about how, um, you can spend your whole life serving those institutions and, and, um, but they're, ju- they're they're also just created things. That's when you begin to realize that so many churches really are just part of the principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. That they are they're the religious version of our cultural heroic system. That you know, I, I think what you're saying is right on. I mean, it's it's the whole thing of you you feel like you're giving your life to an institution in the name of God, and you get to the end of the day, and like you said, you're alone at night or you know, you come against an existential crisis and you're going, man, this really is for naught, you know, this really, I mean, 87 cents of my dollar is going to pay for this guy's 401k and his, you know, his parsonage. And, you know, that leaves 13 cents to actually go to anything we say we believe is a body. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that's what's so unattractive for so, so many of us out there, um, is just, is just seeing that it's hyped and it's talked about so much, but it's so rare to actually see it lived. And hopefully, I think with people like, like you mentioned, Shane Claiborne and the new monastics, I don't know that, I'm like you, I don't think there's a silver bullet and I don't think there's a model Christian, so to speak. Um, but I, I, you know, I appreciate people like that, that are saying, hey, we're going to live in a, an egalitarian community with people that have masters and PhDs and people that are, that don't have their GED yet. And, where those people are going to be just as, just as important. And, you know, I don't know how that happens on a greater scale. Um, and I don't know what that looks like in my own life, but hopefully for our listeners, this is something that can even prod our thinking and saying, Hey, this is something that we need to work towards. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm like you, sometimes we don't even know we're swimming in water. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, you know, one positive recommendation that I think, and you mentioned it earlier about that, that, that homeless man you're talking about is, 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 uh, one thing I've been trying to experiment with in my own life is, um, is, uh, is friendships. Um, we often think of trying to save the world through programs or, you know, um, you know, money, um, and, and I, I'm, I'm just trying to experiment with, uh, just building friendships with people, um, who might be homeless or, or, um, uh, I started teaching a Bible study out of the local prison, um, a, a year or so ago. And again, just, just another way to kind of get myself out of, um, the normal, social circles I'm in and spend life and give a bit of myself to other people. Uh, and that seems manageable to me, you know, uh, to think very locally, you know, you're, you're not, you're not, we can't save the whole world, but we can at least open ourselves up to the people that come across our paths and welcome them and, um, deal with the anxiety of letting them into our lives because they can, they, they will ask, there will be demands put upon us. And love, love is is learning to let go of that fear and exposing and becoming vulnerable to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing uh, in talking about trying to understand how do we live this out? How do we walk in love? How do we 
how do we uh, overcome the the slavery to the fear of death? I know we talked in the last podcast about um, the Dusex Machina and the kind of the, the the God as machine and and this idea that um, God can actually the word God can actually uh, become so conflated with our culture that we end up serving our culture in the name of God. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if one thing, and, and you mentioned this in the last uh, several parts of your series, is this whole idea of maybe the death of God, the death of the cultural God, that sometimes in order to love others, part of what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to kill those idolatrous visions of God that have kept us separated from others. I, I know, for instance, for me... um this idea of the tribal God, you know, the, the mm-hmm. violent tribal God that is about keeping the existential other at bay mm-hmm. and, um, and preserving the purity of the community, the holiness of the community, and many times doing so through violence, whether it's penal substitution as an example, whether it's our view of justice, that, that we view justice as punishment and instead of restorative, kind of like N.T. Wright talks about, you know, that justice is really God just putting the world to rights. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how, uh, as you mentioned in the series, how the death of God can actually lead us into loving the other? Yeah, it, it kind of connects with what we talked about in the last podcast about um, about doubt. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it can. I mean, there are forms of kind of Christian atheism that, that really really go you know a long way in that direction you know um, and, and again Peter Rollins is is somebody who's written a great deal about kind of Christian atheism and and uh, and for him it's a you know it's a dialectical uh, process where we're constantly critiquing and and for me for me the death of God is is, is more uh, about um, keeping our views of God um, fallible and open to provision and, and, but, but, but mainly what you're talking about, which is making sure that I don't allow my anxiety to cause, to insert God in between me and other people mm. that, that whenever, and I think that's the biggest fear. And, and, and when I, when I'm using God to, to, to deal with my own anxiety. And because of that, God becomes a, a source of conflict between me and you. And, and so, so, so for me, that's, and, and again, that's usually what the cultural God's going to do that because the cultural God is going to be inserted between me and the other. Um, because God is on my side, not on your side. So whenever God starts being used as kind of helping sort out the sides, um, that, that God, has to has to die um and so for me that's mainly the thing is monitoring the way god gets deployed and see i actually kind of but i don't think you have to go the way peter rollins goes that far because in the middle of this series he and i kind of exchanged posts about uh this particular issue and one of the things i argued was is that although I completely agree with them that that, that 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 makes sense that somebody might kind of undergo like a real death of God experience where um, um, they just feel God forsaken and 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 because that God dies um, 
they therefore experience God as love for others. And so God just becomes just identified as the loving of others. And and you know, because you've read Unclean, that I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to to that position, yeah. you know, that God is love and mercy and not cultic purity. But I, but I went on to point out people like Dorothy Day, who had a very rich worshipful and prayerful life. I mean, she went to mass every day and prayed the rosary. And I mean, I'm reading her diaries right now. And it was a woman very committed to what we might call religiosity. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody would say that Dorothy Day wasn't completely sold out yeah. for other people. The key for Dorothy Day, and this is what I'm trying was what I was trying to argue with, with Peter um, is that she just she would not insert God in between her and these other people. It was her private. It was the way she sustained her her own life. It's the only way she could do the work that she was doing was go to mass for herself. Um, and I kind of see that with Jesus, right? He would go off by himself to pray, and he would say, you know, if you want to pray, don't do it on the street corner. You know, do it in your closet. Mm. You know, there is a sense where prayer and worship and these things do sustain us, but they're not inserted in 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 between us and other people. Mm. So he, Jesus is still radically engaged with the tax collectors and sinners. But with the Pharisees, they're inserting God in between them and other people. So I, I do – so when I say death of God, I'm not, I'm not saying that somebody has to like do the Christian atheist move. You could. Yeah. I'm not saying I – mean, that, that's one way one could do it. I am, though, the, the thing that's most critical for me is the God that is used to to denigrate outgroup members. Mm. Richard, you're like as you're saying that, there's so many <coughs> things that are just firing off in my mind and in my heart that just so many connections are all of a sudden made because something I've really struggled with, I guess, for the last six or seven months, um, I've been reading so many things on, you know, this, the other and trying mm-hmm. to understand what does it look like? I mean, Brian McLaren is going to be talking about this in his newest book. Um, the subtitle is something that has just went over and over in my mind is Christian identity in a multi-faith world. Yeah. How uh-huh. do we maintain Christian identity in a, in a pluralistic world um, while a embracing the other and B still maintaining a distinctly Christian identity? Yeah. That's such a, that's such a balancing act because it seems like to me in many ways, that seems like the conservative liberal pendulum that, you know, the pendulum for conservatives is we're maintaining our Christian identity at all costs. The, the pendulum for liberals seems like we're maintaining um, the embrace of others, even if it means that we totally lose track of who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're saying that as, as we can't insert God between us and others, what I'm hearing you say is that we can't use God as our spiritual boundary marker. We can't use God as our, God can't be the reason that we call people us and them, or we look at, you know, us and the other, that we can't use God in those kind of uh, divisive ways that we've typically been trained to do. Yeah. And for for me, the thing that helps me get there is just um, the fact that Jesus himself shows up among the God forsaken, Mm. Um, that he, uh, I mean, 
there should be after I mean, if you read the gospels honestly you should be suspicious that god isn't on the other side you know i mean there's that i mean it happened to paul right paul was completely yeah. convinced that he was doing the right thing and he's persecuting christians you know and, and lo and behold jesus shows up on the other other team hmm. you know wow. and you're like well if god's going to pop up on the other team then boy i got to be real suspicious about even choosing teams and i i think this is the i think you, you we talked a little bit in the first podcast a little bit about uh rene gerard and mimetic theory and, and his view of atonement because i think that's what those other views of atonement are trying to do they're trying to suggest that um when we engage when we use god to create scapegoats that's what we need to be saved from that i mean in that sense the the sacred violence is the sin and yeah. so that God has that God has to die, um, and 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 I find God in the embrace of the other, mm. um, and 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 that's I think that's a that's a it's a more holistic and nonviolent way of thinking about atonement. I'm I'm bringing min- the ministry of reconciliation rather than um, drawing a line in the sand and saying you know that like you said the tribal God of this group over against that group. Yeah. Yeah. So important because, you know, it really, Richard, in the last few years, it really has begun to just completely redefine for me what it even means to be a Christian. You know, mm-hmm. what what even is a Christian? Because, you know, for me, for years, being a Christian was believing certain things, was, you know, assenting to certain theological propositions. And more and more, I'm realizing that like you said, you, you said it so eloquently, you know, Jesus so many times shows up on the other team that we just yeah, have right. to, we have to really be suspicious when you start, when you start picking sides, you know, that, and maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons, um, not just the implicit problem with violence in and of itself, but the problem that even if violence, you know, Miroslav Wolf's one of, one of his, uh, arguments is, you know, he tries to he tries to kind of um, preserve violence as only God's prerogative, as the idea that the reason we we can't be violent and God calls us not to be violent is because we don't know how to sort it out. You know, yeah, we don't right. we don't have the ability to figure out who really are us and them. And you said that this has nothing to do with your slavery of death series, but in a post you wrote, um, I guess about a, I guess it was around a week ago. You talked about the parable of the wheat and tares, and that really that really resonated with me. You know this this whole parable where Jesus says, you know, the 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 laborers come and they say, "Do you want us to tear these weeds out?" And Jesus is like, "No," you know, or the farmer in the parable is like, "No, you can't do that. You've got to let them grow together because if you try and tear up the weeds, you're going to if you're trying to tear up the the tares, you're going to tear up the wheat as well. You're going to tear up the good stuff with the bad stuff because you don't have the ability to sort it out." Right. Um, so it's such a it's such a paradigmatic shift to stop making Christianity about trying to figure out who's in and who's out. That's such a for some for some who didn't grow up in conservative evangelicalism, that might not be a big leap or a big uh aha moment, but for me it's becoming that in in what you're saying is realizing that oh my gosh, Christianity is actually the antithesis of trying to sort out us versus them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because you have to ask yourself why would you why why is there that need to weed? Um, like what 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 what's pushing so hard that we really got to get that sorted out? Because I think if you push hard on that, um, I, I think it comes back to what we've been talking about with with uh, a fear of death. Because I think I what I think a lot of Christianity is and orthodoxy and a lot of these kinds of things are ways to somehow verify that uh, I'm going to get to go to heaven. Yeah. And, and so and, and, and the only way I can verify that for me is to have some other person I can con contrast myself with. Um, and so in many ways, we actually kind of, and this is kind of perverse to say, we, all, we kind of need the damned yeah. to verify that I'm the saved. Yeah. Because... And, and that see that's why I think you know you saw that big stink when Rob Bell's book came out Love Wins, and you say well, why was there why was there a general kind of freak out because there wasn't a ton of stuff that he was saying that like C.S. Lewis hadn't said before great divorce world it's like so what anxiety so as a psychologist look at it and go what anxiety is 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 being what, what did he poke that that and and I think it has to do with that I think if he, he he's like. Well, you know, maybe the line between the saved and the and the lost, maybe, maybe it's maybe it's not as clear as we think it is. And do you remember that video that, that went around that kicked off the whole thing? It yeah. began with Gandhi. Yeah. You no, know, is Gandhi in hell or not? And 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 I think people freaked out about it because it's like, well, if you start blurring the line, mm. but but then how am I going to know if I'm saved? Mm. And and that's the point, right? It comes back to the need to know for myself. And so it's a very self-interested motive. And so uh, we don't want the goalposts being moved because I know exactly who's in and who's out. Yeah. You know, I know the wheat, the wheat and the weeds. Um, so don't mess, don't mess with that because if you do, then how am I going to know that I'm saved? Yeah. And then that kicks us back to the very first thing we talked about in the first podcast, which is view of God. You know, what's behind that all is this fear that God's, you know, really going to get you in the end yeah. or what? Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, if you really do get to the heart of the series of perfect love casting out fear, you really do have to get to a place where anything that leads, anything that's fear based has to really die in your view of God, has to die in your theology and that's when you really do have to start questioning a lot of a lot of the traditional views we have penal substitution the traditional view of eternal conscious torment all of these things really do they they really do have to go under the microscope and be evaluated um mm -hmm. because otherwise we just end up serving the idol of death without even knowing it in the name of god right to wrap up richard you you've talked about um in this series, you hit you hit on something at the very end that you call doxological gratitude. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that that helps us to overcome the slavery to the fear of death? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it goes back to what we had talked about in the, in the second podcast about the kind of eccentric identity. Um, so one way to think about it is right rather than trying to cling cling on to life and then and, and be fearful of being dispossessed of 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 it um and not just my physical resources but like we were talking about in the other podcast um uh diminishments to my reputation or my self-esteem you know 
um, the, the, the things that cause us rivalry and jealousy and things like that. Um, the success of others making us feel diminished. So rather than clinging to, 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 uh, to somehow learn to uh, have an open, open hand um, and to receive um, life in, as these things as gifts and not as possessions. So, so I'm trying to use the, I'm trying to shift this from an idea of life is possession, identity is possession as to something that is gift. Mm. And so how do we cultivate the sense that, that everything is a gift? And so therefore we don't necessarily have to protect it, defend it. Um, even our own lives, if my own life is a gift, then, then I, I'm free to give it away. Now I'm not saying you would, but in little ways and small ways, you can give your life away. Um, uh, and so how do you cultivate that? You know, that's a huge question. So I, I focus in on um, um, the work of, uh, um, oh, I forget his name, Kelsey, I think his name is. Um, and he talks about dox, doxological gratitude. So obviously doxology is worship. Um, and and, uh, and gratitude is obviously this experience uh, of gift, you know, so as a psych, so th in one sense, this makes sense because psychologists know psychologists who research what's called positive psychology. know they're like the happiest people in the world. Like when you, you know, if you go looking for the happiest people in the world, you know, one of the number one traits of these individuals is gratitude. And, hmm. um, I mean, I mean, there, there've been studies done that if you literally, that if you, before you go to bed at night, if you just list, three things you're grateful for. The research shows that you have significantly better emotional health and physical health. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's like cheap therapy right there. Just <laughs> three things you're grateful for every day. But see, it that makes sense. I mean, I think if, if, if we, we might not have the biggest house, but if we feel grateful for, for a house, you, you know, you don't feel as jealous or rivalrous or, you know, um, the little things become more important to you and you start feeling blessed. And so, um, so, so where's the worship part come in? The worship part, I think goes to the issue of the principalities and powers because worship for me is ultimately about allegiances and ultimately saying no to the idols of the culture. So when we go into worship, what we're trying to say is all of these things that I, that people pursue to get self-esteem, um, the, the, those aren't, those aren't idols. So for me, doxology isn't about a rock and praise band. Um, it's more about the prophets. Um, uh, the saying no, um, I, I think my, one of my favorite lines from Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, the prophets is, he says, a prophet is the one who can, who, the, a prophet is one who says no to his society. And it's that, that's what I mean by, by worship. Worship is the saying no to the principalities and powers and yes to God. So it's not just mere gratitude. It's it, because you can be grateful, but still be trapped to the principalities and powers. You know, um, I'm grateful that I'm so successful. Yeah. You know, I'm grateful that I'm so good looking I'm grateful that I'm, my kids are on the honor roll. I mean, we can be still grateful but still trapped. And so the way to get out of the trap is to call the cultural heroic system to account. Mm. And, and so, so maybe we could call it prophetic gratitude. 
um, apocalyptic gratitude, but but I called it doxological gratitude to capture that idea of worship. And because and it, it wasn't my term, it was one that um, that uh, Kelsey had used in his book, Eccentric Existence. Mm. You mentioned just just in wrapping up here, you mentioned freedom, and you know it just hit me as you when you said freedom that really if the whole problem that we've run into is the slavery to the fear of death, then really the solution is freedom. And yes. And you touched uh-huh. on, uh, you touched on a story about William Stringfellow in your tapestries of love post, where you talked about, um, how he was basically, he, he had been approached by a church about what they should do in a particular situation where a lady comes in who needs her rent to be paid. And, he had just quickly told the pastor, you know, you need to sell one of the tapestries that you have in your church, one of the beautiful tapestries you have, and mm-hmm. pay that lady's rent. <clears throat> and you talked about how it wasn't so much the act of selling, but it was the freedom to be free to sell. It was it was the fact that your identity, instead of being controlled by death anxiety, instead of being controlled by the slavery to the fear of death, that you were for the first time free to be able to do anything you needed to do. So if you needed to sell your house, you were free to do that. Your identity wasn't bound up in the kind of house you lived in. If you had to, you know, if you had to take a job as a janitor at a school, um, you were free to do that because you, you weren't being driven by those anxieties. Ken, just in wrapping up this whole thing about perfect love casting out fear, can you talk about the role of freedom a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, because that's a great Stringfellow story. I mean, I, I don't know if I can wrap it up better than what you just said. I think at the end of the day, the series is essentially trying to expose that very dynamic, that moment to moment in life, I'm constantly faced with choices. But if my whole identity is saturated with anxiety and with possession, I'm just, I, I am not free. I am, in the language of the Bible, enslaved. And, and that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the idea of Christus Victor, that the ultimate thing that Christ was doing is emancipating us and liberating us. Um, but the only way we can be liberated to love others is to be set free from this fear and this anxiety. Um, and uh, But when I am free and, 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 uh, and not anxious, um, then, yeah, I can maybe I can do maybe big things, you know, um, that you kind of mentioned, but, but also many, many little things. Mm. Um, you know, so when I think of Jesus washing his disciples feet, I think there's many ways during the day we can take the, the, he's, you know, when Jesus says, you know, don't take the seat of, don't take the, the first seat, take the last seat. Yeah. There's just little moments where I can just not pursue my own self-esteem because it doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm not, I'm uh I don't care what people think or what they're going to say. So I'm free to take the last seat, put somebody first. And, and I, I think when we, and I think the promise of God is that when we begin to do that and die to those things, die to that anxiety, um, that we experience real life, you lose your life, but you actually really find it on the other side in resurrection. On Good Friday, it doesn't look very promising, but. Sunday's coming. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, that's it. right. That's it. Wow, Richard. I, you know, to be honest, I don't even want to wrap this up. It's so so darn good. I'm just so enjoying this. But I just want to thank you so much for taking the time 
to really encapsulate uh, 120 pages of writing into three hours for us to really help us understand kind of what the problem is and, and some ideas of how we can be trusting the spirit to bring us to bring solutions in each of our individual lives. Thank you so much for taking the time, Richard. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody will visit experimentaltheology.blogspot.com um, and, and just shoot you a little contact just saying how good they've, how much they've enjoyed this and how much it's uh, made an impact in their own life. So thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. It was an honor and a pleasure. Amazing stuff. Wow. Oh, this has just been a great series. I hope you guys have gotten a lot out of this. Make sure to stop by Richard's blog, Experimental Theology. You're going to find a lot more where this came from. There's just so many good good things that he puts up over there. Richard, you just um, I just really appreciate you, brother. I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your mind. And I just appreciate your willingness to talk with us on the podcast. And also just your willingness to put out good material like this. I really feel like it's making a difference. So thanks so much, man. Really, really appreciate it. I hope you guys will jump over to experimentaltheology.blogspot.com. Um, drop Richard some comments and let him know how much you appreciate him taking the time to do this series. I know some of you guys probably haven't had the time to listen to 30 or to read 31 parts on his blog. Um, maybe you're stuck in the car a lot on the commute to work and it's a lot easier for you to listen to a podcast version of this. So hopefully that this has helped you do that. If you get a chance, I really would love for you to read through all 31 parts. It really goes much more in depth than we were able to in a three hour conversation. So I hope you do that. But if not, please let Richard know how much you appreciate him being on the podcast. And guys, we just really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. Um, we've said it a million times, but I, it just bears repeating. I really appreciate the community that Beyond the Box has become. Just really appreciate you guys. I really consider you guys a huge part of my spiritual community, my spiritual growth. And you guys contribute just as much to me as I hope I do to you um, and hope these conversations do to you. If you would like to interact with us, you can go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com. You can put your comments on any post that you see, this one or any previous post. Um, you know, any questions you have or any comments that you want to say or maybe a disagreement, feel free to put that there. There's also an idea submission page that you'll see at the top of our homepage. You'll see a little link for idea submissions. Drop us an idea there of a future podcast you'd like to hear, either a topic you'd like to hear me and Steve bat around or a guest that you would suggest us have on the podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, make sure to visit us on Facebook, facebook.com slash beyond the box. That's a great place that you can interact with a great community of believers who are just totally open to hearing different thoughts and totally, um, I feel like it's just a great safe place where you can put things out there that you might've been afraid to ask in other spiritual communities and not be afraid that you're going to be closed down or judged. So please use that. Feel free to start a new thread with a topic that you're interested in or to comment on a previous thread. Um, we would just love to hear you interact with us there. You can drop me and Steve an email if you'd like to, um, just beyond the box at beyond the will get you there. Um, if you want to sign up for our Twitter feed, that's twitter.com slash BTB podcast. And last but not least, if you'd like to call us and leave an audio comment, you can do that at 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. And if you, you know, if you'd like us to call you, you can actually go to our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, 
Look on the right-hand side for a little widget that says Call Me. Click that and put in your name and telephone number and submit it, and we'll actually call you back, and you can leave a message. Um, We would just love to hear from you however you'd like to interact with us. I just so appreciate you guys taking the time to listen, taking the time to interact, and just really look forward to the conversations that this Slavery of Death series will generate. Um, I just really, really hope you guys have enjoyed this. I just can't thank you enough, Richard. Thanks so much. I look forward to more conversations in the future. And until next time, guys, this is Beyond the Box. Have a great week.